The events leading to the outbreak of the First World War are well known. This is no mistake. They triggered what was then the most destructive war in human history, pitting Britain, Russia, and France against Germany, Austria-Hungary, and the Ottoman Empire. Tens of millions died, and the map of Europe was redrawn. Things would never be the same. But the First World War could have happened very differently. Not in 1914, but 1896. Here, an industrial war of unprecedented scale would have been fought by the British against the French, and perhaps the Russians too. It may seem crazy to think of these 1914 allies destroying one another less than two decades before, but this is not some half-believable alternative history. By October of 1896, the Royal Navy was mobilizing reserves and drafting war orders, preparing to fight the French in Europe and around the world. The French themselves were reaching out to the Russian Tsar, seeking support in a coming global conflict. For six months, Britain and France were on the brink of total war. In the swamps of the Upper Nile, among the half-ruined, half-forgotten outposts known as Fashoda, a confrontation between a small group of French and British soldiers nearly engulfed Europe in flames. This momentous encounter was the Fashoda Incident. Europe has long nurtured rivalries, and the rivalry held between the powers at Paris and London was one of the oldest and bloodiest of them all. The British Empire had come to dominate world trade, snatching up the most valuable colonies for herself. A great many nations felt her influence a little too great. The French were highly militaristic, possessing Europe's greatest army, and they seemed eager for glory in foreign affairs. Though defeated, Napoleon Bonaparte's armies had marched across Europe, reshaping it as they went. Since then, the French had built themselves a powerful navy to rival the British, taking colonies in Africa and Southeast Asia, and starting fights wherever they went. Austria, Mexico, Prussia, the United States, all almost went to war with the aggressive French in the years before 1900. The British thought them warlike and unpredictable. Respect existed between the two great powers, but neither expected any loyalty from the other. The situation was tense, but developments in the Ottoman colony of Egypt were about to make them outright dangerous. Egypt has long been a region with massive global importance. The seat of an ancient culture, the small stretch of habitable land surrounding the River Nile and its delta had been one of the richest and most densely populated regions on Earth for over 5,000 years. That wealth had built the grand monuments to the pharaohs, the Great Pyramids. Their wealth made the Roman Empire rich, for the province of Egypt provided as much as half of all their taxable income. Little had changed since. Despite the industrial advances made in Western Europe, the per capita income of Egypt in 1800 was about equal to that of France, making it one of the wealthiest regions in the world. On top of that, Egypt was the gateway to Asia, in particular to India. 
The lucrative trade between Europe and Asia, the so-called Silk Road, though increasingly circumnavigated by Europeans around Africa and across the Atlantic, remained highly valuable. When the French started investing in the Suez Canal Company in the 1850s, this position of importance was supercharged. Capable of cutting the journey from Europe to India by around 40% and to Shanghai by a third, if opened, the Suez Canal would revolutionize world trade and give any power controlling it a dominance over global affairs. Britain was, unsurprisingly, opposed to French involvement from the start. Rarely do those with power look favorably on their rivals getting any of their own. As the nation with the most to gain, as well as the most to lose from trade with Asia, the British made plans to control the region, first buying a 44% stake in the company in 1875 and later invading Egypt and taking control of the entire country in 1882. The French were furious. They had taken all of the risk in investing in the Suez Canal Company, working hard to see the world's largest infrastructure projects completed. Along the way, they had triumphed over a great many challenges, and yet, just as the canal began to operate effectively, at that final moment of glory, the British had cheated their way into control. Revenge had to be had. If they could threaten the British position in Egypt, they would force her to make concessions, perhaps even drive her out of the region entirely. These aspirations led to a number of wonderfully impractical plans being suggested. A French base in Sudan could be used to base a fleet of French gunboats, which could be floated down the Nile to threaten the British. Another outlined the construction of a massive dam on the upper Nile, so large that the water supply could be cut off all of Egypt. None of these were sensible, but the fact that a base in the as yet unclaimed region of Sudan controlling the source of the River Nile could threaten the entire British position in Egypt was entirely correct. And thus, the French started plotting, plotting as to how to reach this remote region, how to secure it, and how to throw the British out of Egypt and the Suez Canal for good. The French expedition was the small but serious result of this planning. Its official objective, to explore the region around Fashoda, this public disguise hid the true purpose of the mission, to remove the British influence in Egypt. To do this, they would have to get to Sudan and take it for France, all while maintaining complete secrecy. They knew the British would be moving to take control of the Sudan soon, and so they had to act fast. The race to Fashoda had begun. 100 Singhalese fighters were assembled for the job. Leading them would be no more than 12 Frenchmen. Officers, doctors, and interpreters, they came from a variety of walks of life. Other than their mustaches, they also had in common a shared love of the French nation, and a set of skills needed to make the mission a success. Leading this force was Jean-Baptiste Machon. Once a veteran of the occupation of French Sudan, today's Mali, he was no stranger to championing French imperialism in Africa. It was Machon himself who had proposed the idea of the Fashoda expedition some years earlier, spending his time poring over maps and issues of supply since, all while obsessing over British involvement in Africa. He would turn out to be the perfect man for the job. Getting a steamer from French Senegal in West Africa, the expedition reached Libreville in Central Africa on June 20th, 1896. Part of the small French colony of Gabon, Libreville represented the real beginning 
of the French expedition. From this point on, the assembled troops would have to travel across the heart of the African continent, a route roughly 3,500 miles in length. This is a gargantuan distance to travel, around the same distance traveled by the colonists on the Oregon Trail, who also moved from sea to sea, this time in North America. But of course, Central Africa is no North America. The journey faced by the French expedition was grueling in many more ways. To traverse the rivers along the route, the French party had dozens of small boats, as well as a large Fadeherb steamboat. This was needed because some sections of the river had such strong rapids that steam power would be indispensable. This machine of modern convenience was not without its difficulties. When the river proved itself too low to support the berth of this large vessel, the entire thing had to be taken apart and hauled across land. The French party then had to drag tons upon tons of heavy machinery across 400 kilometers of difficult terrain before reassembling the ship when the river ran high enough. Malarial mosquitoes, as well as a host of other diseases, made the journey increasingly difficult and uncomfortable. Swamps, crocodiles, fleas, and fever, all these added a different dimension to the already backbreaking efforts needed for the journey. The situation was not helped when the expedition found itself lost or unsure of their exact location on numerous occasions. They were moving across territory little understood, even among those who were indigenous to it. The Frenchmen did their best, but like many European explorers of Africa's interior, delays and disease made the affair grueling work. On July 10th, 1898, Machon and his somewhat exhausted band of French and African men finally arrived at Fashoda. They were not greeted by a thriving and bustling village, but instead by abandoned ruins. Though this reception was far from ideal, the party could breathe a sigh of relief. The hard work of the last 24 months was at an end. They had got there before the British. However, they would have little time to rest. Machon knew conflict was inevitable. It could be in a year, it could be the very next day, but with no prospect of reinforcements, he could not afford any delay. He set about building a new fort to defend. When it was finished, a French flag was hoisted from the flagpole in the front, where it flew in the breeze clearly stating the French claim to the area. Later that day, a high wind caused the flagpole to snap, sending the flag tumbling towards the earth. It lay there in the Sudanese dirt for some minutes before a new flagpole was erected and the flag could be flown again. This tiny incident stuck in the minds of the men assembled. What was this small, tired group of Frenchmen doing in Fashoda? It was surely an omen. As it turns out, they were not entirely wrong. On August 25th, two steamers were suddenly seen approaching downriver. Unknown to the French forces, who weren't sure what to expect, these boats were packed with around 1,500 Mahdist warriors. Jihadists and anti-imperialists, the Mahdists had just created a new religious state, famously murdering Charles Gordon, the eccentric British general governor of Sudan in the process. Needless to say, they were not about to let the French start running around Sudan, hoisting up flags of their own. These men were looking for blood. Machon was massively outnumbered, with only 100 men. Numbers were not on his side. Fortunately for the French forces, the rifles held by this small group of Senghalese soldiers were pretty amazing, 
modern bolt actions, the same kind that would be used in the First World War, these guns could lay down fast and accurate fire. This they did, and to devastating effect. Firing again and again, their rifles grew hot from the stress, burning the hands gripping them. But the French held, and the Mardis warriors were repelled, suffering many casualties. The French may have set out pretending to be explorers, but the flag ringing high over the fort and piles of Mardis bodies surrounding the area showed just how untrue this was. They dug in and prepared to meet the British. On the 18th of September, the British finally arrived, but what they lacked in haste, they more than made up for in numbers and firepower. Chugging up the River Nile with no less than five gunboats and 1,500 British and Egyptian troops, not only did the British outnumber the French more than 10 to one, they were also armed to the teeth with artillery and machine guns. Led by none other than Herbert Kitchener, who would be the Secretary State for War in World War I, this force meant business. The French may have fought 1,500 Mahdists, killing scores, but these men were part of a force that had fought 52,000 and gunned down most of them. That particular slaughter, the Battle of Omdurman, had made the British progress slow. Sighting the French flag flying atop that small fort from their vessels, these men prepared themselves for further bloodshed. The showdown that followed was like some surreal Western film as each force eyed one another from their positions. The exhausted looking but formidable French leaning on their rifles and smoking on the one side, and the great steamers and machine guns of the bustling British Egyptian camp on the other. Conflict seemed inevitable, and in the scorching Sudanese heat, tensions ran high. A private meeting was arranged. Kitchener walked out to meet Marchand, dressed not as a British officer, but as an Egyptian general. The message was clear. The presence of French troops was an infringement on Egyptian sovereign territory. The French were invaders, the British good Samaritans. Kitchener relayed this message over food, drinking wine with the Frenchmen and remaining cordial throughout. In return, the Frenchman told Kitchener that he was at Fashoda under orders from Paris itself, and that he could not withdraw without orders, also maintaining a polite disposition. Though each man treated the other warmly, Serious threats were traded. Neither would back down, and each represented their nations. An attack in Fashoda could well mean war in Europe. And so, with all words spoken and with all wine drained, the two men returned to their camps and hunkered down, awaiting the news from Europe. Despite the relative cool shown by the forces in Fashoda itself, Back in Europe, the situation was frantic. Britain demanded, outright, that the French leave the Sudan immediately. The French promptly refused, giving no further details. The House of Commons in London erupted with calls for war, MPs jeering and pounding at their benches. The Prime Minister wanted moderation, but the mood was so hot that the Royal Navy was put on war footing. The British made it clear to the French that, although undesirable, war was not off the table. Meanwhile, the French were starting to lose their nerve. Relations between Germany and Britain remained warm. When Russia, who had been competing with the British in Central Asia, showed no interest of going to war over Africa, France was left without friends. 
To make matters worse, the Dreyfus Affair, a massive political scandal involving systemic anti-Semitism and supposed treason, embroiled French politics. Assassinations, intrigue, and riots in the streets of Paris all made the French government particularly indecisive and unprepared for war. In this climate, moderate voices of caution prevailed. The new foreign minister, commenting on the situation at Fashoda, said, "'They have soldiers. We only have arguments." Despite a tide of nationalist voices in the press and the streets calling for war, he maintained a stance that peace was the better option. The British were told that Marchand and his men must be a private expedition, and their presence in Fashoda had nothing to do with the French government. On the 3rd of November, the French government quietly asked Marchand and his small band of soldiers to withdraw from Fashoda. Their bravery and effort had produced no great change to the balance of power, but war had been avoided. Marchand himself had to be coerced to leave, begrudgingly abandoning the mission he had devoted so much of his life to. It was over. Sudan was handed over to the Egyptians, and Egypt and the Suez Canal were handed over to the British, who would continue to dominate world trade until 1914. When the British Prime Minister made a speech in the city of London stating much the same, he received thunderous applause. Britain had won. And with that, the Fashoda incident had been resolved. France had been humiliated, and Britain had defended her empire. War was always a possibility, but in truth, neither Britain nor France wanted to go to war over some abandoned village in Sudan. But the risk of war remained real. Much of the same can be said about the powers of Europe in 1914, for few then would have wanted to go to war over some Serbian assassins, and yet to war they went. Conflict has a tendency to escalate, as each side tries to prove their strength and improve their position in negotiations. This is, in turn, taken as a threat by the other side, who escalate further. This self-defeating cycle is the feature of belligerent diplomacy, one that has led to many wars across history. In this case, war was averted, as the French realized their position and backed down. They decided to give the British what they wanted, in hope of gaining them as an ally in future conflicts. As one French editorial said at the time, Germany keeps slapping us in the face, Let's not offer our other cheek to England. The frightening prospect of what a future where the French had stood their ground might look like was thus left unseen. Britain and France would grow closer together, not further away. 16 years later, in 1914, these two ancient enemies would find themselves fighting not against one another, but side by side. In that war, both commanders involved in the incident at Fashoda, the French Machon, and the British Kitchener would fight again. Each must have appreciated the irony of the situation. Had Fashoda gone down differently, it would be unthinkable for the French and the British to be fighting the Germans side by side. Most likely, the Great War of 1914 would have gone down very differently. And so, in its own way, that abandoned fort in some Sudanese swamp redrew the map of Europe, changing history forever. And there you have the 1898 Fashoda incident. Please leave a comment down below with your own thoughts and reactions, and remember to like this video and subscribe to support the channel. Thank you for watching, and I'll see you next time.